Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack, or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Season 4, Episode 3, Miriam's Sensual Universe. Our guest storyteller is Sophie Strand. Sophie is a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. She is the author of The Flowering Wand, the novel The Madonna Secret, and a forthcoming memoir on disability and ecology, The Body is a Doorway. Subscribe to her newsletter, Make Me Good Soil, at sophiestrand.substack.com. Follow her work on Instagram at Cosmogony and find her at sophiestrand.com. A quick note on the audio quality of this week's episode. It's not awesome. I've been joking with my fabulous editor, Laura, that this has been like not work storytelling retrograde for the entire season. If it's not one thing, it's another when it comes to logistics and technology. But the conversation I have with Sophie is so necessary, vital, beautiful, and broad reaching. I knew we needed to bring it to you. Before we explore this week's story, I have a question for you. What about your stories? Whether it's a book project that wants to be birthed, deep, authentic writing to support your business, or a personal creative project you can't quite name yet, I'm here to support your process and help you get your words onto the page and into the world. I work with folks who are writing memoirs, chronicles of the spiritual journey, and books that explore healing and the imagination, even as they explore the toughest truths of life. I support entrepreneurs, especially coaches and therapists in private practice, who wish to weave their personal experiences with their professional knowledge and wisdom. Do you want to build a writing practice and develop the ideas you know you must share? Visit my website, marisagowdy.com, to learn more about my writing coaching services and set up a free 30-minute consultation. I am so pleased to welcome Sophie back to Not Work Storytelling for her second story. As is our way on the podcast, we first ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll explore all the ways that it still matters. So Sophie, welcome. Will you tell us the story? Yeah, thank you so much, Marisa. I love sharing with people that we actually live in the same ecosystem. <laughs> we know the same hawks and rivers and trees. And so coming together in this digital world feels even more resonant because it has a real root system in the real world. But yeah, today I want to talk a little bit about Miriam Migdal-In, otherwise known more popularly as Mary Magdalene, who has been coming to popular attention, especially with the rise of interest in the divine feminine and 
finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Nag Hammadi texts and the understanding that before the Roman Empire co-opted and codified a very narrow version of Christianity, it was egalitarian and amplified women's voices. Oftentimes women were the ones who were the priests and gave the sacraments and that there were many different texts that told different versions of the Jesus story before we reach what becomes the New Testament. I always say the New Testament is like a game of telephone. It's been translated through so many different languages and deracinated, uprooted from its context for Judaism, its Galilean ecology, its sociopolitical pressures, its original language, Aramaic, that it no longer makes sense. And then it is translated into the language of empire. So we lose the ecologically radical anti-imperial bent and also the deeply feminist bent of the, these early Christian traditions that wouldn't even have identified as Christian. They would have seen themselves as kind of a radical Jewish sect. And so Mary Magdalene is situated in that as being a teacher. She's called the Apostle of the Apostles in many of the Gnostic texts. She's called the Koinonos, which translates as companion of Jesus in the Gospel of Philip, which is one of these early Gnostic texts, kisses her on the mouth and loves her more than all the other disciples, such that they often complain. And there's been a lot of wonder about the suppressed feminine inside this Christian story and the dominant paradigm. How does a man who obviously seems to be pro-women, ecologically radical, become the figurehead for militaristic, ecocide, colonialism, sexism, how does that mistranslation happen? And so for me, telling Mary Magdalene's story is, is just a portal to telling all of the erased stories, the stories of the plants, the slaves, the women, the midwives, the people who have been erased from this narrative as it has been co-opted by empire. And for me, we keep these stories never go away, that no matter how hard an empire tries to go in and erase them, they stay in the body and in the folklore, in the herbal practices of the women. And so it was always interesting to me that the Magdalene, even in the most traditional texts, is associated with anointing, with herbs, with spikenard. It's a very earthy, musty, almost like armpit smell. People think about spikenard and hear it, that it was used to anoint kings, and then it's associated with the Magdalene. But if you actually smell it, and I always encourage people to do that, it's an intense smell, very bodily. And the, Ma the, so the Magdalene, even in the texts that have been the most sterilized, the most tailored to empire's needs, the Magdalene is still there. She's the one at the tomb. She's the one who washes the body of Christ, who is at the crucifix. She's the one who's there, the whole story, more so than the disciples. And we know that anyone who is allowed to wash a body and be at the tomb was probably a family member. We also know that any Jewish at the teacher at the time period who is not married would have been seen as untrustworthy, as denying the imperative of God to multiply and to marry and to tend to the land. And so we can begin to look at the folklore as well and see that the folklore in France, in the Mediterranean, that persists resiliently for many thousands of years alongside dominant Christianity is that Jesus was married or partnered and that the Magdalene was his counterpart. And so we see in her, in her relationship to 
this anointing oil that she uses to anoint Jesus to and her washing of his feet, her association with smell and with plants, with midwifery in the folklore, that she's keeping the story alive in women's practices, in the gossip, in the whispers, that yes, she won't survive in the text, she won't survive in the hierarchical structure of the church, but she will survive in the whispers, in the stories that the, the peasants and the people don't want to give up. And those stories survive to this day, that in France, where she is said to have escaped after the crucifixion, we see an incredibly resilient, durable Marian tradition. When I say Marian tradition, I mean mother of God and also partner of God. And when you look at a lot, a lot of these images of Mary, mother of God and Jesus, it's a woman who looks to be Jesus's age, who is next to him like a partner. And I oftentimes say, look at the iconography, not the dominant narrative. Look, what are you actually seeing is you're seeing a man and his partner. And not that we want to erase the mother figure too, but that the partner is also important. And when I think of the Trinity, I don't think of a Holy Spirit, disembodied spirit and a father God. I think of the mother, the wife, and then the teacher and them all together creating this new holy family. And so in my retelling of this story, I tried to go back into the plants, the animals that actually, if you drag a fishing net through Jesus's parables are the main subject matter. It's about how do we make bread? He's always talking about women's practices and the peasants. You know, he was part of a probably illiterate working class Galilean population that had been subjected to daily persecution. They had been dislocated by other empires. They'd known exile. They'd been killed. There have been failed uprisings. And then there was a mass crucifixion of women and children outside of Sephoris in the years just when Jesus would have been a young child. He probably had cousins, family relatives who were killed as part of that. We think of one crucifix, but you know, there were thousands. We have to understand that. And all of those erased voices. And I tried to, to bring back to life that kind of radical sensibility, someone who is really combating with daily violence and doing it through stories about foxes and mustard seeds and grain and leaven and daily practices. How can we like use these tools of our daily livelihood and turn them against empire and create systems of mutual aid, sharing food and healing outside of these city centers dominated by empire so we don't need to depend on them anymore? So really, the Magdalene and Jesus are like these like renegade mutual aid groups. They're weaving people together, saying like, we can heal each other. We don't need their doctors. We don't need their food. We can share everything we have and we can travel on foot. And so that's my kind of weaving of, of what I was trying to resurrect is the plants, the women, the smells, the ecosystem, the biodiversity of stories. That when we think of Jesus, we oftentimes think of this individual dead already on a cross. But there were many, many lives behind that one life that went into it and that were deeply, tragically hurt by his death. I wanted to show that, you know, the Magdalene is a person who would have wanted that man to live longer, <laughs> that the Magdalene is there saying that there's no death that's worthwhile. There's no death that's worth fetishizing, that we want we want our people alive, sharing food and healing. Oh, Sophie, 
thank you for giving us that sort of 360, 200,000 feet above and also from the core of the story kind of view. And that's so much of what my experience of reading the novel was, is that sense of deep, deep intimacy you offer us of each individual seed and also seeing the whole world and the whole landscape as conspiring as part of the story in such a really, I guess, simply in such a brilliant way. But I mean that as much in the sense of that it, parts of it just shown off the page in ways that certainly wasn't offered to me in the Catholic church I grew up in, right? It certainly, we didn't have any of that level of realness that shines through with all of your words and visions. Thank you. I was really inspired by other storytellers like Anita Diamond, Diamond, I forget how Mm -hmm. to pronounce her name, and The Red Tent. So resurrecting the voices of the women in the Old Testament and their Mm -hmm. actual practices, their red tent where they would go and they were menstruating. That book was very meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Mary Renault, who was this queer writer who went back into Greek history and resurrected all of the queer lives that had been forgotten there. And those books saved my life when I was growing up. And what I really admired about them was their ecological texture, which is they didn't just bring you a couple of characters. They brought you the perfumes, the scents, the spices, the foods, the recipes that you were entering into a sensory world such that if you wanted to like smell these things and cook these things and embody the somatic element of the storytelling as you were reading it, you could. And that's Mm -hmm. really what I admired, which is, you know, they're primary documents. There's so many ways we can access this information. Why not use it in our storytelling? Right. And to me, what's really emerging for me is noticing that when I come upon writing or art that really reminds me of my senses and the sensual nature of things, that's when I realized I'm reading some sort of spiritual text. And whether that is written 2,000 years ago or it's salvaged from, from well before that, or whether it's written right now, and I just come into that recognition of how, uh, well, due to the COVID vaccine, I didn't have a fully functioning nose for quite some time, which was interesting. But now that I do, I recognize that I forget so often the power of scent. And your book just anchored that in as reminding of the sense that when Miriam got dressed, it was about whether or not she was wearing a scent and what it was and connecting us to the sensuality of that and her devotion to beauty and, and of her whole culture. So it was obviously part of the, all the story and how sense and anointing came in. It just reminded me of beauty in such a potent way. And I was so grateful for that. Because I too have never, I realize I've never smelled spike nard either. And now I have, I, I need to go on a field trip and find some spike nard. <laughs> My gosh. I mean, it's so interesting to think. It's so expensive. And in Miriam's time period, it's it's more money than even a rich person would make in a year to get this much, right. like to get like a thimble full. So when, mm-hmm. when she uses it in a, in a way that initially looks kind of, useless that it's just this man sitting at a dinner table and she's using it to anoint him it seems very wasteful but it's also highly meaningful and now you can go to a natural food market and get that much for like twenty dollars maybe right it's right. a funny thing but i mean one thing i always have thought about is that smell smell is the sense that we have the least vocabulary to describe and yet it's mm. one of our most 
important senses in that mm -hmm. we use smell to pick partners that, you know, mm -hmm. they did this sweaty t-shirt challenge. And when people pick partners based on the smell of a t-shirt, they picked partners who they were more likely to actually get married to. There was this one study, they did a dating app and the people who like pick partners on smell ended up like having long-term relationships, but it's also genetic, which is they will oftentimes pick people with the exact photonegative immuno, immunological genetic markers so that they will fit together to create in a child a really hearty immune system. So they pick someone who's like very genetically different in a positive way than them. And so we use our smell to pick partners. We can oftentimes smell when danger is coming. We used to have a much more environmentally embedded sense of smell where we could smell weather systems. We could smell the difference between different plants, their ripeness. We smell other people. We knew when other people were sick or afraid that there's this idea that dogs have a more intense sense of smell than us, but it's actually not totally true. Our sense of smells are pretty compatible. Ed Young writes about this. He's an incredible science writer in his book, Immense World, about the sensory experiences of animals. He's like, we have this idea that dogs are highly attuned to smell, but we are too. We just, we don't use it and we don't recognize it. But smell is also deeply attached to the parts of our brain that capture memory. And for me, smell is a way of time traveling especially to people and to places that no longer exist. I open up this perfume that my English grandmother who passed away wore, and I'm with her. I'm with her more than when I cognitively try and summon her. If I smell that perfume, it's sub-intellectual. It's bodily. I can feel her. I know what her hands felt like. I know what her closeness felt like. Yeah. And so for me, approaching a love story that is a tragedy Approaching the story that's at a remove geologically for most people, culturally, and at a remove of 2,000 years, and so many different mistranslations, I thought that the best way to do that kind of time travel would be through smell. Yeah. Yeah. In the lead up to the book, I sort of heard you describe it as really kind of emphasizing the ecological and calling us in. And that was so immensely true when this beautiful, big, thick book landed on my doorstep. And I was just also so, and I will, I will own my like 13 year old wanted to go sit in the hammock for every single moment of the long summer day and just get lost in another world. And the fact that you offered that as well, and the sense of like, all the parts of me feel really filled up in a way that makes my eyes fill with tears. And that that's, a rough and beautiful trick to pull off where it fits our sort of, well, both our romantic sensibilities and our beautifully mammalian sensibilities. And then that recognition of like, oh, they're actually the same thing. This isn't the part that I learned from too much 90s television. And then the part of me that's timeless. This is that opportunity of true union for those different pieces to come together. Oh, it means so much to hear that. I texted my group of long-standing childhood friends that we're all still friends today. And I said, I wrote this book for us. And mm -hmm. we would pass these big tomes, these epics, these romances, hand to hand, and like say like, look, watch out for this scene. This is the good scene. And, you know, <laughs> when I wrote this book, I was writing it. I was not writing it for a literary reader so much as I was writing it for my hungry love story obsessed, but also very intellectually desirous 12-year-old self. You know, I wanted a story 
that, that I knew had been well-researched, but I also wanted a good love story. I wanted it to summon all of my, you know, not to be explicit, like my horny 12-year-old sensibility. I wanted to be able to hand it to them. And, and a big, thick book like that was had a kind of a magic when I was that age. You know, it was a long book. I cut like 300 pages at least, even after wow. I finished it. But there was something about the heft of a book that felt like it matched my own adolescent intensity. I didn't want a short book. I wanted something big that made me feel important too. Yes. Oh gosh. And I think that, and whether it's, you know, you and I are a good number of years apart. It's not necessarily a function of when we were born. It's a function of that moment in our lives when there was time and space to read a big giant thick book Uh and that sense of giving ourselves permission again to go back to that and not try to get it in not to say anything wrong with podcasts but in podcast size bites what is it like to devote yourself over hours and days and many bedtimes of being able to snuggle up with this those books have saved me in my life that you know there have been moments where we we oftentimes demonize disassociation in a very simplistic pop psychology instagram world but when moments in time when you have illness with no cure, when you have trauma that's unresolved, when you're going through something that doesn't have like a clear ending, disassociation can save you. It can save your life. And there were moments in my life where I needed books that were a thousand pages long that could encompass an entire season, a month of bedtimes that could help me disassociate so I could make it. And so I hope that there, for some people, this book will provide that life raft through those seasons that are hard to, to manage. Oh, it does. It does. So I'm going to take an abrupt left turn, right turn. I'm not sure which side they're on, but the Jaguars from your book are so uh-huh. present in this room with me right now. And I don't know what, maybe it was the sense of smell. Maybe it's just because when I will walk away, when I walked away from the book, it was like, and so I just feel like they need to have a little voice here. And I would love to hear a little bit from you about who they are and how they came into you and what they're, and, and obviously for folks who haven't read the, the book yet, this may seem a little left field, but it also feels like it also is a beautiful portal into the ecology and the magic and the more than human worldness that is so baked in to your story. Oh, thank you. I always laugh and joke to people and say there are lions in the Old Testament because there were lions in Palestine, that we have this shifting baseline syndrome issue. You know, that's that's an ecological term, which is that mm-hmm. climate change happens either naturally or anth- anthropogenically. And then we think it's always been like this and we can't remember what it was like before. And the truth is that successive empires have come into Galilee and Judea and committed ecocide, genocide and ecocide, and changed that ecosystem radically in the 2000 years since Second Temple period, since Jesus may have lived. And we think that the desertified areas around Judea and Jerusalem and Galilee are what they were like then. And the truth is that they used to be quite lush. In fact, scholar Michael Haig and his book of research about the Magdalene says it probably would have been closer to Provence. And there were a lot of animals and a lot of plants and beings. And if we want to resurrect Jesus, we need to resurrect the beings he would have actually been getting his spiritual wisdom from. 
And same goes for the Magdalene. What world grew the spikenard? What world grew the rose? And something that I've always loved is the divine feminine is often associated when we look at the rhizomatic continuity of love goddesses in the Mediterranean basin, back through the Bronze Age. Goddesses are often at times associated with big cats, be they lions, jaguars, that there's something about feline energy, female feline predator energy that is oftentimes associated with Sybil, Inanna, with women who oftentimes represent warfare, violence, actually, and love. And if we, we in Venus, if we look at these love goddesses, they're oftentimes really intense figures. They, they oftentimes have swords, they have lions, they have jaguars, they're, they're intense and they're formidable. You know, sometimes we have the sweet mother goddess, but sometimes we have the goddess who is there to have sex and to defend her beings, her more than human kin. And she's often flanked by lions. We see that. <laughs> or lions or jaguars or, or, or whatever, you know, beasts that are there to protect her. And so for me, I wanted to give Miriam, Miriam has been, you know, in the sixth century, Pope Gregory sees that there's really an intense contingency of Mary Magdalene devotees. And in many different Christian sects, people are treating the Magdalene as someone who is equal to Jesus and equally important. And he is really trying to co-opt Christianity to tailor it to the needs of empire, which is hierarchical and male-dominated. So he needs to suppress all of this feminine power and the egalitarian foundations of Christianity. And he does this in this famous sermon where he conflates the unnamed sinner woman from Luke, misinterprets the sinner, the, even the word for sinner woman, which probably just meant hairdresser, misinterprets that to prostitute. And then conflates all of these people together to create this like pretend Magdalene who he can discredit. And that's where a lot of these ideas about the Magdalene being a prostitute come from. It's from this like much later on sermon by this Pope Gregory. But he does it also to remove her of her divine attributes of that she was oftentimes spoken of as being a highly magical and powerful being. And so I, when I was writing Miriam, I wanted to give her back her magical attributes. I wanted to give her back her big cats and her power. Oh, and they, yeah, they just hold, just hold so much. Oh, also when I was writing Jesus, I was really seeing him as a continuation of vegetal gods in the Mediterranean who are associated with fermentation, dying and resurrecting, they're often anti-imperial, celebratory, they heal, they disrupt empire. Dionysus is definitely the best example of that. Comes in with his wine, his jaguars, and women oftentimes main ads wearing jaguar pelts, and he would wear a jaguar pelt. And they were oftentimes flanked by big cats who would go out on the hunt and eat raw meat. And that was how they were demonized, but that was also their sacred right, was to embody the sensibility of the more than human, to go out on the hunt, to be animal skin, to be big cats. And so the jaguars are also associated with what I think of as the healthier version of Jesus, the bodied version of Jesus. That, you know, when, when Jesus gets co-opted by empire, he his body is literally erased. In the tomb, his body does, it ascends, and it doesn't mulch back into the ground like Dionysus or Orpheus or Osiris. And we want to give Jesus back his body. We want to plant him back in the ground, back into that healthier Dionysian celebratory world. And so the Jaguars are also this connection to this kind of healthier Dionysus movement. 
It just occurs to me too that, of course, we, so many of us now live with the domesticated version of the jaguar. And in so many ways, we also live with the domesticated version of Yeshua and Miriam and all of the, you know, the choirs of saints that have been passed down to us. And I feel like that's where, I mean, I, I know that's just kind of the core of so much of your work is in that we're in this moment of reckoning with everything we have overly tamed, overly domesticated, and just lost track of the wildness that is both right at our skin level, right out the door, in our past, and ever-present. Yeah, I mean, something I've been thinking about a lot is, so I just read this wonderful book called Against the Grain, Deep Time and Early States, by James C. Scott, who teaches, I believe, at Yale, about the history of agriculture. Mm -hmm. And he really puts it wonderfully, which is the past 2,000, 3,000 years have been a process of de-skilling, which is if we actually look at our lives, we do not know how to grow food. We do not know how to take care of our land sustainably and intervene in it in a way that is beneficial for it and us. We do not know how to make medicines, how to give birth. We do not know how to die. We don't know how to know how to repair our homes, how to build things. We don't know how to do most of the things that make our lives happen. We don't know how to be bodies. And so I think a lot about domestication and the ways in which these stories get co-opted as a way of actually de-skilling us. That if we look at Yeshua's stories, they're highly skillful in the context of Galilee. They're saying, this is how you really practically interrupt empire. One of his big, big talking points is anti-agriculture. Because agriculture, you have to think about Rome as being one of the first massively commercialized agricultural states. So what it does is it creates this intense empire, and then it goes in and co-ops other people's crops and land, uses it to produce monocrops that don't feed those people, but feed the internal empire. And so agriculture, which used to be their way of feeding themselves, communing with the land that they see themselves as being tenant farmers on for God, is taken from them. So Jesus, a lot of his parables are about interrupting the agriculture that is benefiting empire. <laughs> so it's highly skillful. And it's about creating practical ways of sharing food and healing outside of ideas of who's, who's pure and who's good and who's bad so that you can practically survive a moment of intense imperial oppression. That's skillful. It doesn't translate from Second Temple period Palestine to now, but it's been de-skilled. We're not getting this, this highly practical. I oftentimes say that myth is a patch of soil where you plant your most practical ecological environmental information. Oftentimes in myths, you see personified elementals who are telling you about agricultural practices and when to eat the berries so you don't get diarrhea, like when to go and get the fish, like highly skillful things, like how to, how to treat a wound. That, and, and they're dressed up as stories because stories are much easier to remember and transmit than lists in oral cultures. That, but when you uproot those stories from their context, you translate them into English, into a whole country mm -hmm. away, they seem cute and precious instead of being mm -hmm. like highly useful. And so I think of the story of Jesus as being, if we replant it in its original context, we see it as being this wild, feral, skillful way of negotiating life 
under the oppression of a violent empire? How can you begin to interrupt that process and take care of your family? Mm-hmm. And we have uprooted it and sterilized it and taken away. We de-skilled it completely. Right. And th- at the risk of saying something so obvious, it just in your speaking, it reminds me of how much in an age where we're so sensitive and aware of cultural appropriation, except when it comes to that big old thick book that they passed on yeah. just for 2000 years, that's fair game. Those are just the stories of humanity, but you reminding us they're the stories of a very specific humanity in a very specific place at a very specific time. And then those accounts are being are highly biased. You always have to remember that written accounts are always told by male elites, that for most of written culture, which is also a tiny fraction of human history, writing mm-hmm. was only practiced by the wealthy, people with luxury time to, to study and learn writing, and then the time to write it. So they're highly biased accounts. So whenever you get a story that's been written down, it's usually tilted towards the bias of the victors and the men and the wealthy men. So you always have to remember that. And knowing that your Miriam is illiterate and that is a pain to her in many ways. And it's also just baked into who she is as part of her character. Yeah. I'm really interested in how the shift from oral cultures to chirographic to textual cultures creates a conceptual paradigm that lays the foundation for material reductionism, for capitalism, for colonialism, for all of the sins of of the current moment. And that in oral culture, knowledge is never seen as something that you can pin to a page and possess. It Mm -hmm. is a verb that stitches you together with an environment and with an audience who can respond and interrupt you and change how you think. And to keep knowledge alive, you have to keep it alive in stories that are relational. And you have Mm -hmm. to keep that knowledge updating to shifting climatological and social needs. That knowledge is plastic, it's relational, it's responsive, it can be interrupted. And it's always weaving you together with other beings. That it's a verb. In an oral culture, you don't think of a story as being an object. You think of it as your breath, breath that leaves mm-hmm. you, and enters into the world. And in many traditions from Ireland to America to Japan, the idea is you take an in-breath and you're breathing in the ancestors, you're breathing in the pheromones, the funk, the microbiome. The story isn't doesn't start in you. It starts in the air, the ruach, the spirit. Mm-hmm. To go back to the Jewish tradition that you breathe in and then begin to stitch together. So you're never like the author. The idea of an author is a relatively new convention. And so for me, it was really important that Miriam represent that healthier oral tradition, which would have been highly dominant at that time period. That only 2% of even Judean Jews, that's a small subset, those are the urban city Jews, were literate at that time period. That's not even to talk about the northern rural Galilee. Most of Judaism was practiced through oral storytelling and conversation. And in fact, you were seen as being a more skillful spiritual teacher if you could extrapolate on stories, if you could change them, if you could respond to them and dialogue about them. And so it was that oral wisdom that was adaptive and creative that was really highlighted during that time period. The Celt in me loves the idea of the Bardic tradition being something that was certainly not just kept in a couple of small islands off the coast of Europe, but really was baked into the way that our ancestors across the world would have been in community. Yeah. Mm. 
and knowing that there's a super harvest full moon up there and i didn't even know it was supposed to be lash and rain for like we're at like 72 hours of rain here in the hudson valley again Uh, everywhere yeah happy full moon i mean i i feel like all my radio transmitters are just like glitching out it's really intense yeah and it's been such a part of my work lately especially it's just like remembering like it always matters and i think this is so important for you as well i've read it in your writing like what's happening outside the window at any given moment when the words are appearing on the page or when we're in conversation as you're reckoning like you know we're couple in comparison to the world we're like we're neighbors being about 30 miles apart but knowing that we're in this like we would tell a story perhaps in a different way if this was like a brilliant autumn new york perfect afternoon and instead it's rainy and cozy and we're both clutching our teacups in a way that makes them sort of our divine chalices well i also think we live generally in the territory of the Monsunafe people And Mm -hmm. as far as I've been able to reconstruct with a lot of the reading and research I've done, the winter, fall to winter months are the storytelling months that -hmm. you don't actually tell that many stories during the summer and the spring. Mm -hmm. You're busy. You're busy actually harvesting and living and eating and taking care of the practicalities of life. And then during the cold winter months, like a bear, you go in and that's when you do the story work and the dream work. And the dream work and the story work are combined. I was reading, and this is so fascinating, that dreams were seen as being like a collective community experience. So when you'd have a dream that you would bring it to the community to think about it together and then to solve it, to bring it into fruition. And so I also think like we're going into the dream story work season where we all have to like create cauldrons in our home, ecosystems of coziness in our home where we can come and work on the stories and the dreams. The stories that have been stuck, that haven't moved, that need other eyes and other voices. Mm. You know, I'm realizing it wasn't all that many years ago when I heard someone talk about the sense that there are certain stories that never were meant to be told out of season. And I think about Uh, that now, like, well, of course, like, that makes perfect sense. I must have always known that. And then I remember I was like listening to something while folding laundry, uh, you know, not that long ago and going, oh my God, I never thought of it that way. And now that's yeah. become such a part of my own weaving in. And it's just that sense of even looking back in the last couple of years of the podcast, I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I told that story in February. That, yeah. that, is, a, that is an October story. And you know, I guess that's just our opportunities we get as storytellers to kind of keep remembering these pieces that we're lost in our on demand, everything is streaming. We've got all the books on the shelves and it's not like they're only available once the autumn equinox has passed. I know it's such an, I mean, I I think also like reading a good story will change your interoceptive experience. So interoception Mm -hmm. is your ability to tune into your own internal states, your heartbeat, hungry you are, where there's pain, And so when you're reading something, it can oftentimes shift your heart rate, your nervous system, your own internal state. And so a story can actually adapt you to a season. It's priming you for certain experiences. So that's both a superpower and also a problem. If you're reading too many summer stories in a moment in time when you should be slowing down and pulling in, maybe it's going to push you physically in the opposite direction. So I think about that a lot. Yeah, that's so interesting. There's a story that I'm thinking I'm going to tell a little later this season about Tailtu 
who is the god Lu's foster mother, who she dies of exhaustion after clearing the plains for agriculture. And of course, that's become something of an August story because that's when the festival of Lunasa is. But I realize I keep feeling called because it's that sense of, oh, this is the time of the year to start leaning into the story of what I really read as a a woman who gave all and depleted herself so much for the good of others that she then fell down dead, essentially, and all the modern parables and parallels that are in that and recognizing though the wheel of the year, beautiful as it is, has set that in a bit of stone, it really feels like that is a story for the dark time. That's a Samhain story about looking at the end of the harvest and depletion and what comes next in the dark period. Yeah. And I also, we're also in shifting climates, Mm -hmm. you know, stories change to suit changing needs. And I look at the Hudson Valley where we both live and and I I've lived here my whole life and the seasons have changed Mm -hmm. and the phenological cascades, there's been mismatches between the migrations of birds, the flowering. I saw flowering lilac yesterday and flowering forsythia. The plants are confused. And so I also have to think about how, yeah, maybe the stories that were told at this time period no longer match this. And and what how can we how can we restitch these things in a way that helps? And it's both liberating and terrifying to recognize that calendrical time does not fit as as it once seemed to. No, yeah. the moon though is helpful, and I do. I love working with those lunar cycles because then at least I can feel like yes, I am. I'm cycling. I'm not moving on a straight line. I'm coming back to this bowl where I can pour it all back in during the full moon. Yes. <laughs> See what needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and I learn the most about myself and the pace of life when I recognize. <gasps> I don't know what phase of the moon we're in. And I don't remember the last time I saw her or had a chat with her. Oh, that's some good information. Yeah, I know. That moonlight on your skin does that. I love that experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, as we sort of start to land our conversation, I feel really drawn to the place where the story begins and ends, I suppose, in France, right? Where Miriam... Is in, in speaking of the oral tradition, she actually speaks this story to a young man who comes in essentially as a story I collector. It's super important to me is that the frame narrative is that it's a spoken story. Um, the lot, the yeah. funny part about it is I had to actually my publishers insisted that I narrate it. I do the audiobook, and the funny thing is the audiobook is like seventy hours long, and it's supposed to happen during the duration of a night. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking with the director about. I guess it was a very long night. Was it well? You know, we were just talking about playing with calendrical time. We'll also play with clock time. It's all elastic and plastic, as you said. <laughs> but it feels it, that sense of. I don't know why I want to call in. Maybe just it's that sense of knowing that Miriam's story was one very much of being in Galilee and being in the area of Jerusalem, but also her sense of travel and the sense of kind of coming to another shore. And that feels like maybe just part of the metaphor of how her story has traveled to all of us, that she has this sort of pilgrim soul that went from one space to another. And that's just really poignant for me at this moment. Well, what something I've thought about is stories do travel, but they travel Mm -hmm. in bodies at the pace of a footstep. 
And, you know, I think about how we think of travel as being like a snap. Like we can travel to California in a couple of hours, but we get soul jet lag, spirit jet lag. Like we're not just getting physical jet lag. We're we're not greeting all the beings. We're not moving through all of the different ecosystems on our way to pilgrimage to another place. And the stories get left behind. And I think about Miriam. So Jesus' story is the way Jesus' story has been co-opted by empire has been deeply paired with technology moving at a violent speed, going in, Mm. not asking for permission, taking, co-opting, moving. And Miriam's story moves at the pace of a footstep and a body. And because it's not written down, because it's oral, folkloric, part of women's traditions, heterodox traditions, it's always moving at a bodily speed. So she can mm-hmm. be a traveler and the story doesn't doesn't become dogma. It doesn't lapse into kind of superficiality because each step she's taking, she's acknowledging where she's moving to, where she's planting herself. So I think for me, the healthier versions of Jesus's teachings have moved in those footsteps. Mm. And she's telling the story of a very poignant number of years with the wisdom of a lifetime. Yeah, it's really. an old woman's story. It's not, a, and that was also very important to me. Is she sees all of the mistakes she's made, that she mm-hmm. is in no way a saint, or and 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 she she can see all of the things that she could have done differently. Mm. Oh, well, Sophie, thank you so much for being here with us. I, I'm so glad you didn't do anything differently in terms of this book. It is just such a gift. Part of me wants to know what's in the other 300 pages, but knowing that what you created here in these many hundreds is pure magic, pure drift, as they say. So thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you, Marisa. And thank you to the whole Knotwork community. This has been a really wonderful way to start the rainy storytelling season in the Hudson Valley. <laughs> Yes, you're here. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love. And your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub, Myth is Medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billionbath.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.